Hey everyone, you're listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the book of Ephesians. Enjoy the message. All right, so we're in the book of Ephesians. We've been preaching through this letter uh, for the last couple of months. And uh, this morning we've reached chapter 5, chapter 5 of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. And we're going to be covering the first 21 verses of chapter 5 this morning. Uh, They do form one unit. It's quite a lot for us to get through. But uh, here we go. The first question I want to ask us is this. What do Christians, cars, and cell phones have in common? What? (laughs) More than just the alliteration of the sea. Each of them, each of them requires an internal power source to enable them to function properly. Cars and cell phones and Christians can look really fancy on the outside, can look really shiny and presentable on the outside, but phones don't work unless they're charged, and cars don't go unless they're fueled. And Christians don't function unless they're filled. And our text today is going to encourage us to be filled with the right stuff. In order to walk the Christian walk, and this has been the metaphor that Paul introduced in chapter 4, that the Christian life is like a walk. It's a journey. It's a walk. And in order to walk the Christian life, and not just talk it, we need to be empowered, empowered by the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so just to recap quickly, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul introduced this metaphor. He said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then again in verse 17, he says, no longer walking or no longer walk as the Gentiles do. There's a contrast between how Christians should walk, and how non-Christians should walk. Don't walk like the Gentiles in the futility of their minds. So he establishes a contrast. Not only is this a walk, but it's a contrasting walk. Christians are to be distinct in how we walk and live. And now in chapters, chapter 5, 1 through 21, he develops this metaphor of walking with three specific instructions. In verse 2, we're going to read about walking in love. He says this, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Then in verse 8, we're going to read about walking in light. Now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then in verse 15, we are to walk in wisdom. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so this These 21 verses form a unit, and we are exhorted to walk in a particular way. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. So let's think through the first one, walk in love. From verse 1 through to verse 6, Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, this is a rather firm and stern warning from the Apostle Paul concerning how we are to walk. But before we get to the warning, let's just Notice the family language that he introduces right in verses 1. He introduces this idea of us imitating God. And the reason we can imitate God is because we're his beloved children. This is family language. And it echoes chapters 1 and 2 where we are told how we've been adopted by grace through faith into God's family. And this was all his doing. From before the foundation of the world, he chose us to become sons and daughters. And so he, he echoes this idea of, uh, that we're seated, we're, we're safe, we're, 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 we're there. So although there's an imperative of how we should walk, he begins with this assuring word of your beloved children. Your beloved children. And so imitate God. And the big idea is that children love to imitate their parents, don't they? I mean, growing up, most of us, would repeat actions and certain phrases that our parents did and said, some good, some not so good, uh, and some things that we would rather forget, right? In, in other words, often that we, when we grow up, we realize we've become a, just a, a little chip off the old block, as they say, which is why Paul's going to address parenting in the next chapter, just in case you were wondering. His point is that Christians should do the same. If we belong to God, if we are his beloved children, we should imitate him. We should consider his nature and consider his character and follow him. If God is love, walk in love. That's his point. And God is love. So walk like loving Christians. How sad is it that sometimes Christians can be the most unloving? But hang on, before we point the finger at Christians, let's just consider love. What is love? What does love look like? Is is it loving for me to do whatever makes me feel good? Is, Is it loving for me to maybe have as my highest ethic to remain faithful to myself? Is that love? Or is it living a full life and not worrying about others? You see, there are various ways we could approach defining what is love. And across nations and across cultures, people can come up with a whole range of definitions of what love is. But actually what we see here is that he does define it. He says, imitate God, and then he explains who God is in verse 2. Look at this, he says, And walk in love, and now he's going to say what that looks like, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It's a subtle way of telling us that Christ is God 
But more importantly, this is how God loves. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, the love of Christ is to be the paradigm. The love of Christ is the template, is the example for how we are to love. And when we consider how Christ loved, which is what he's telling us to do, walk in love as Christ loved us, we come to the conclusion that love is not just sentimental emotion. Love is sacrificial. As Christ loved us and gave himself up, true love is sacrifice. Not indulgence. Not sentimentality. True love, as we look at Christ, is self-denial, not self-serving. Matt Chandler, one of my favorite quotes, he says this, Our culture doesn't love love. It loves the idea of love. It wants the emotion without the sacrifice. So we need to grapple with what is love. Before we say they're unloving, what does it mean to love? Even the Beatles had a go at this. You know, the famous song, All You Need Is Love. But what did they mean by that? What was their version of love? What was their vision? Because if it's, if it's a correct vision, then yes, then all you need is love. But if it's the wrong version, then no, <laughs> that's not going to be helpful. Because what, what, what were they saying? Like, for example, I love to do drugs. Is that loving? I, I love to gossip. I love to sleep around. Is this love, sex, drugs, and rock and roll? That was the Beatles' vision. Is that, is that all you need? Is that what the world needs? Well, they're trying, aren't they? Certainly not loving. You see, the Beatles had a particular vision in mind that was what they thought was most loving. I think we would all agree that we should love our neighbors, but can we all agree on what that should look like? The point is this. We cannot, we cannot let the world or the culture shape our definition of love. We must imitate God in the person of Christ who laid down his life for us. And so it's not about indulging my emotions. It's not even about tapping into my inner self. In fact, it's got nothing to do with me. It's all about what is God done in Christ. What is, that's true love. It's self-denial. It's self-sacrificing. It's not self-fulfilling. The word of God must define what love is. And so then Paul narrows it down. So, so he gives us this bold and big vision of what love should look like. But now he's going to take aim at a specific sin. And in many ways, it's the opposite of love. It's lust. And he takes specific aim at this. Look at this. And I think the reason he takes aim at it is because in the city of Ephesus, when we've spoken about this in our earlier chapters, there was this huge temple, remember, the temple of Artemis. And at the center of this temple in Ephesus was a goddess, goddess Diana. And she was the goddess of fertility. And hordes of folk would come to this temple and there would be sexual immorality in the name of this goddess. That people would lay down their lives. They would 
literally sacrifice themselves to the goddess Diana. And so Paul then says this in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints, Christians. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Paul really does narrow the topic here to sexuality and and to sex itself. He, He really begins to take specific aim at what should be proper among saints. And the two things he addresses specifically are immoral sex and crude and vulgar talk about sex. That's clear in the, in the text in verse 3 and 4. And so Paul is saying two things, that all forms of sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage between one woman and one man is self-indulgent lust and not love. Let me say that again. Paul is saying that all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage between one woman and one man is actually self-indulgent lust and not love. He uses the word for sexual immorality. The word there is pornea. The Greek word pornea, which is where we get our word pornography from. And then he He piles word upon word. So he says there shouldn't be pornea amongst you, sexual immorality. And then he uses the word all impurity. Just in case you can get around the first one, he then includes all impurity. And then he doubles it again by saying and covetousness. Which is, at first it seems out of place because immediately we think of greed. And he's hitting the nail on the head. He's saying you actually worship sex. And you can do it in two ways. And so he's addressing all disordered sexual activities. Greedy, immoral, idol worship is what he's after. And he is saying to us that as Christians, there's another way. That the church should walk in real love. And he's saying that there's a problem in Ephesus and there's a problem in the world. And I think we know this. There's a real problem, and the problem is this. It's twofold. Sex has been idolized. Sex is either worshipped as God, or sex has been trivialized. It's gross. Depending on how you view it, depending on how you've lived, depending on what's happened in your life, depending on your story, either you are worshipping sex, or you are trivializing sex because it's gross. You've been hurt by it. You've been damaged. And Paul says, no, that's a distortion of love. Actually, sex is a gift. Look at how he ends verse 4. He says, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. So stop, stop the crude joking. Stop trivializing it. And stop giving yourself to this world and this culture that prizes and idolizes sex. He says, no, give thanks to God by ordering your life correctly. Sex is a gift. Sex is not God. Sex is not gross. Sex is a gift that God has given between husband and wife 
to remind them of what love looks like. It is self-sacrificing. So, how does Paul motivate this attitude among the church? If you think he was being harsh there, he gets a little more serious. And in his seriousness, he wants to motivate us. He wants to motivate us towards a biblically orientated sexuality. So look again at verse 5 and 6. And he says this, For you may be sure of this, no doubts, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And you might be thinking, whoa, that's heavy. That's heavy. That's the kind of preaching of old, isn't it? You know, that kind of turn or burn. That's what he's saying. It is a matter of life and death. Really, it is. And Paul's using it as motivation for the church, for the people of God. He's saying, guys, get rid of it because it really matters before God. If it's tripping you up, you need to get it out. And you might think, but what happens if I've already failed in this area? Will I go to hell? And the good news of the gospel is, yes, it doesn't matter how many times you've failed. If you run to Christ, which is what we're going to look at next, if you walk not only in love, but you walk in light, there is forgiveness for our sins. But this is not what Paul's aiming at here. What he's actually saying is that hell is a very real possibility if sexual immorality is your God. That's all he's trying to show us. If sexual immorality is your God, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. Because only sons of God go to the kingdom of God. But if sex is your God, you will go to hell. If you continue to partner with immorality in an unrepentant, habitual, continuous manner and not partner with Christ, then you are in serious danger. And so I'm just going to leave that there. That's what the text is saying. It is a warning. And let us feel the warning, church. Let us feel it and let us respond. So what can we do? We can walk in light. The text goes on quickly with me. Verse 7. Therefore, he says, do not become partners with them. The people that idolize sex and people who trivialize it through coarse and crude joking, don't partner with them. In other words, we've thought it through theologically, and that's what we've done in the first part. We've thought it through theologically. Now he's saying, just think about it logically. Look at this in verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, that's how you lived, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk then as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. 
But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And as we think about it logically, it's so true, isn't it? Light and dark are complete opposites. And if we're really going to walk in love, that means we're also going to walk in light. If we're going to imitate God, then we're going to reflect God. These these two things don't mix. Light and dark don't mix. And maybe at one time, verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. It's really fascinating the way he speaks of that in the personal sense. You were darkness darkness and now you are light and i think the only reason he can say that is because jesus is the light of the world and if we have faith in christ we are joined to jesus and so we too should be like him so don't partner with darkness it's out of your character like we said earlier that garment that clothing you were wearing that old cloak of sinfulness get rid of it it's out of fashion you look silly in it Don't put on darkness. Don't partner with darkness. He goes on and develops that that if you're living in the shadows, it's still time to come out. Which is why he ends. He says, awake, O sleeper. Awake. You don't need to live there. Get out of the shadows. Come into the light. The other thing about sin, it loves shadows. It loves its power is kept in darkness. Secret sins. Thrive in the shadows. Thrive in the darkness. Notice verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. You know what? Dark fruits are no fruits. (laughs) It's unfruitful. And the thing about sinful practices and the promise of idolizing sex or, or trivializing sex and all of those things attached to it is that it It does promise you a whole lot, but actually it delivers nothing. It's unfruitful. There is no fruit other than pain and heartache and misery. Ask people who've been there. But instead expose them. So in other words, if if you're walking in the shadows and there's secret sin in your life, get it into the light. Bring it into the light where it cannot thrive. What does that look like? Well, firstly, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. But then there's something else we can do. He says then in verse 9, for the fruit of light, so the darkness is unfruitful, but the light is very fruitful. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. In other words, there's blessing. There's fruitfulness when you walk in the light. When you order your life according to God's word, it's fruitful. But not only is it a promise of blessing, it's also a plan for battle. Because here's what he's saying. You need to ask the question, what is good? What is right? What is true? So before you speak, or before you sit down to watch the movie, or before you click on that website, ask yourself, is this good? Is it right? Is it true? Does it please the Lord? This is a battle plan. Verse 9 is a battle plan for your life to how you get out of the shadows. How do you get into the light? You run to Jesus by asking these questions. Is it good? Is it right? 
Is it true? Think about it logically. What is this actually going to do to me? What is it actually going to produce? Pain and misery. Run from it. The third and final point is walk in wisdom. So we thought about it theologically. We thought about it logically. Now think about it practically, he says. Walk in wisdom. Verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk. In other words, just let's get practical. Think about it carefully, how you walk. Not as unwise, or you could use the word foolish, because that's his conclusion. Logically, if you're going to live in the shadows and you're going to choose unfruitful darkness, what a waste. Foolishness. Not as foolish or unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. He's getting really practical, yeah? Because the days are evil. There's nothing like idle Christians who tempt the devil to tempt them. Make the best use of your time. The days are evil. Therefore, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, he does take aim here at drunkenness. Let me just say one or two things about this. Firstly, it's clear that he's not addressing alcohol when rightly handled, but this is an excessive expression. Drunkenness is clearly a sin in Scripture. But it's more than that that he's talking about. He's using it as an example of the kind of foolishness, the kind of unfruitful darkness that he's been warning us about. And he contrasts it with being filled with the Spirit. He's, he's contrasting, he's saying, look how foolish those people live. When, when alcohol is your God, or if sex is your God, it ruins your life. It ruins your life. But when Jesus is your God, you are filled with another kind of walk. These guys walk really badly. Ever watched Drunk Car Walk? It's that part of the test, isn't it? It's a different walk. And when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it's a different walk. What kind of walk? Well, it's really interesting that he actually tells us. The, the text is rather interesting because... When he says, but be filled with the Spirit, he's not saying to Christians, you've never got the Spirit, because we know from Ephesians 1 and 2 that we've been sealed already, but with the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed. The Spirit is our guarantee of our future glory. So what is he talking about? He's talking about an ongoing experience, an ongoing practical experience. 
says, but be filled with the Spirit. And that in the, in the Greek is a continuous tense verb. It's saying, keep on doing this. But then most of us are thinking, but what does that look like? Is it some weird spiritual, mystical kind of Zen, kind of on a mountain, posture pose, hammer tune? What must I do, Paul? And thankfully, he tells us actually. But be filled with the Spirit. So that there's the command, and then he gives us the imperatives by addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melodies to the Lord. That just seems so out of place. But it's not. What Paul is saying is that there is fullness in fellowship and worship. When Christians walk with Christians... When Christians walk in fellowship with one another, it is a form of worship. Notice that he's saying addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, if that were purely literal, that would be a really strange experience. For some of us, our fellowship would be really short. We'd have to dig up some really interesting psalms and hymns to speak to one another. Is that what he's saying? Well, it's not really what he's saying. What he's saying is that this is Christian life. It's doing life with Christians. And it's, and it's not just watching rugby together. It's, yes, we must watch rugby together, but it's actually intentional. It's intentional. How are you doing? What's happening in your life? Do you know the word really is a very important word? Because often we can say to one another, how are you doing? And the answer is always fine. But if you put the word really in, it changes everything. How are you really doing? How are you really doing? Speaking to one another. Addressing one another. So firstly, it's horizontal. The the imperative is, is horizontal. Be filled with the Spirit by... Speaking to one another intentionally. Intentional community. Spiritual community. And, he says, singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. In other words, Christian fellowship, Christian worship is the space and the place where you will begin to walk being filled with the Spirit. That's the first thing. We, we could spend a lot of time developing this. We don't have the time. The second thing is there is fullness in thanksgiving. He goes on and says, giving thanks always and in everything to God. Again, this community, this new community that we're part of, it's a grateful community. It's a humble community. And he ends it off in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is fullness in loving, humble community. The big idea is this, be filled. What are you filling your life with? What are you filling your life with? What are you doing with your time? How are you spending your time? Who do you spend your time with? What are you filling your mind with? What are you filling your heart with? I keep telling my kids, junk in, junk out. It's so true. If you walk in the darkness, you're going to fill your life with junk. Walk in the light. Walk in Christian community. Connect yourself. Be addressed. Address other people. Speak to one another truth. Worship together. 
Be in community. Study the Bible together. Ask each other the really question. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Listen, if cars need petrol to go, if cell phones need to be plugged in, Christians so much more. We need to be plugged in to Christian community and we need to be filled with God's spirit and God's word if we're going to walk in love and walk in light and walk wisely. We need to be filled, which means we've got to be plugged in to worshiping, loving community that submits to Scripture and one another for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. It is a sharp sword that comes both to convict and comfort us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you went to a cross and on the cross you died for all our sins. We thank you that you experienced on the cross the wrath of God for where we've stumbled and where we've fallen and where we've walked in darkness, where we've lived in darkness. Lord, we can, we can even this morning confess once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. And for some of us, we, we're wrestling with that. We're like, Oof, there's still a bit of darkness. There's still a bit of darkness. I need to get rid of it. Then that's God's grace to you this morning. God's grace to you this morning is he's calling you to come out of the shadows. Get out of the shadows. It's unfruitful darkness. And walk in the light. And be filled with the Holy Spirit. As you connect yourself to Christian community and Christian teaching and Christian worship. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to be this loving community, this community that submits to one another, that honors you above all things, Lord. We want to respond by coming to the light. Lord Jesus, you are the light, the light of the world. And in your light and in your presence, nothing is hidden. We know that you see all things. You know all things. There's no point in us hiding. And so whether we run to you now or whether one day we stand before you on that judgment day, the light will reveal everything. And so rather we choose to come now. We come before you now, Lord Jesus, and we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, help us. Forgive us for we have sinned. Forgive us for our wrong. Forgive us for our iniquities. Creating us a clean heart, O God. creating us a pure and upright heart, we pray. Lord, we want to walk in love, true love. We want to walk in the light. And we want to walk wisely, making the best use of our time, not spending it on debaucherous activities, but 
filling our lives with truth and fellowship and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you, Lord.